Hello, and welcome to the Spillman Insights Podcast, where thought leaders at Spillman, Thomas & Battle update friends and clients on legal and business issues. Thank you, Pamela. Um, Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. We are going to kind of jump right in this morning um, and and get, get started. The first thing we're going to talk about very briefly are kind of consumer debts, specifically mortgages, student loans, and credit cards. My probably most used word over the last week or so has been fluid. Um, A lot of things have changed very quickly. We will talk today not only about the CARES Act, but also the way some of the um, government agencies are implementing those provisions and how they may or may not be consistent with the Act. Um, We will also talk about some of the changes we've seen from those entities kind of very quickly um, as things have progressed and moved forward. So first thing we want to talk about really are kind of mortgages. The CARES Act does put some moratoriums on evictions and foreclosures. It's pretty important to understand that when you're talking about the mortgage the mortgage world, um, as far as those loans go, that the loans covered are pretty vast. The Act applies to anything that is insured by the FHA, anything that's insured under the National Housing Act. It applies to anything that is guaranteed by HUD or by the um, VA. It also applies to any guaranteed or insured loans from the Department of Agriculture or the USDA. And it also applies to loans that were purchased or securitized by Fannie and Freddie. It has a couple of different provisions depending upon the size of the unit. So if you're dealing with a traditional um, one-to-four unit loan, the Act says that there can be a forbearance for up to six months um, and that also there's a 60-day moratorium on foreclosure and eviction for those mortgages. Now, interestingly, here's one of those, those nuances. As of this morning... Fannie Mae actually says that that forbearance is good for up to 12 months. So the CARES Act says that it is good for six months. The um, At least Fannie at this point is taking the position that those forbearances can be done for up to 12 months. Now, we also know over the last week and a half, Fannie's put out seven updates on changes to interest rates and deferments and the handling of kind of loans that it is guaranteed or securitized. So I'm going to go back to my most used word, which is fluid. Um, Things are changing kind of every day, um, sometimes multiple times a day. So it is going to be important over the next few weeks to kind of pay attention um, to to what type of loan you have and what the guidance is coming out of that agency because it may or may not be consistent and it may change as we move forward. Um, When you are dealing with some of the bigger units, so if you've got the multifamily apartment complex, um, those types of units or those types of loans, they have a different forbearance period. So they are actually entitled to three different 30-day forbearance periods. So if they make the request today, they get a 30-day forbearance. 
they can make two more requests for additional forbearances. The act says that they are required to make a request 15 days in advance before the initial forbearance period ends. It also says that for anyone that is an owner of an apartment unit, they cannot evict tenants for non-payment for 120 days. In addition to that, they cannot evict tenants if they are under forbearance. So if you have a borrower that owns one of those apartment buildings and they are in forbearance for 90 days, during that 90-day period, they are prohibited from evicting tenants for non-payment of rent. As far as workout options go, at this point, and the Act says very clearly that even if loans are not in default, if they are not in imminent default, that servicers and banks are allowed to engage in workout options. So essentially any type of deferral, um, interest rate reduction, modification, all of those options are now available for non-troubled loans. With respect to student loans, student loans, for the most part, as long as they are guaranteed or issued by the federal government, have a payment pause and interest waiver for six months through September 30th of 2020. Um, That is a date set certain in the statute um, of September 30th of 2020. The loans that are not covered are any private loan, any Perkins loan that is held by an institution, and any family federal education loan that is held by an institution. So for, for those types of loans that were not held by the federal government, they're held by institutions, even though they are federal loans, They are not covered by the six-month payment and interest waiver. To the extent that, you know, you have a private student loan, there's no guidance in the statute as to whether or not um, you should provide or how you should provide deferments or forbearances. With respect to kind of credit cards and other consumer debt, There is nothing in the statute. Um, Companies are handling that on a case-by-case basis. They are requiring kind of individuals to reach out to them. And to the extent, I know we had a bunch of um, kind of bank employees and and others who who work in the financial services world who were on this morning. Um, You know, even if you are not kind of servicing these types of Um, mortgages or student loans, if you do have kind of small business owners that are coming in because you are going to be helping with them on the SBA side of it with maybe some small business loans or some lending, um, it is kind of important for you to at least have that information to know that there are other debts they may have that will be impacted um, and their financial status will be impacted. And with that, I'm actually going to hand it over to, um, to Travis to kind of talk about some other, some other issues. Thanks, Ange, and good morning, everyone. Uh, For those who do not know me, my name is Travis Kenobi. 
Uh, I am a member here at Spillman, um, and I've been doing creditors' rights work almost exclusively uh, for 12 years, beginning with my bankruptcy clerkship with Judge Stone down in Virginia. Um, primarily, I will be talking about uh, the situations that uh, do not fall under the umbrella that Ange discussed, uh, meaning loans that are not um, under federal moratorium, uh, loans that are not guaranteed or falling under the Department of Agriculture, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, etc. Um, and so I'm talking first about practical considerations that we might um, face when looking at enforcement of commercial loans. Um, some of these considerations will apply to consumer debts as well, uh, but for the most part, I'm tailoring it towards uh, commercial enforcement. Uh, the first thing that we all need to think about is that in this sort of brave new world that we're in, uh, many courts are closed, um, some entirely, some very limited. Uh, you know, state Supreme Courts are declaring judicial emergencies. Uh, even federal courts are closing down. Um, we've even seen some recently where the clerk's office have had staff infected with uh, COVID-19. And so the, the courthouses themselves are closed and all business, uh, even by the judges, is being conducted remotely. So obviously this has a pretty big impact on what we do as attorneys for you um, and what you uh, should, should and can expect. Um, for those courts that are not completely closed, um, almost all of them and all of them that I deal in are closed to all but non-emergent matters. Um, there's a, there, there's give and take on what an emergent matter is, uh, but what I've learned through, you know, a few court calls, et cetera, is that most of what we do, unfortunately, is considered non-emergent. Uh, for example, um, I'm dealing with, with one file where we have a hotel in Pennsylvania, um, that has not been performing well for a while now, but, um, this is, uh, brought its occupancy rate down to about 10% from 60. Uh, as you can imagine, that's a huge swing in revenue. Um, and both the lender and the borrower want a receiver to be appointed in the meantime. And um, the courts have said, no, that's non-emergent. We're not going to do it. And the earliest we can possibly deal with this in Pennsylvania anyway is going to be May 1st. So um, those are some considerations that we need to keep in mind. Um, for those courts that, that aren't fully closed, there are still other courts that are adjusting. Um, you know, some, some of the bankruptcy courts, for example, are going to strictly telephonic appearances, um, 341 meetings uh, in a lot of cases for bankruptcies uh, are being canceled. Um, some are being done by telephone, but others are just being postponed uh, sort of indefinitely for the moment. Um, and courts have not yet figured out exactly how they're going to allow evidence if this goes on for, for months and months, because some hearings will need to be held. Um, there are many courts that are thinking about um, using remote conference call uh, options, um, allowing swearing in of witnesses, uh, witnesses to appear by telephone and give evidence that way. But we still don't have uniform guidance on that. So as as Ann said, this is going to be a fluid situation. Um, but 
it, it's, it's worth keeping in mind as we go forward. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is foreclosures and the practical considerations we need to make on commercial foreclosures that, that are not under uh, guaranteed moratoriums. Um, for judicial foreclosure states, uh, you know, I, I, many of these states have shutdown orders in place. Um, courts are closed. And, and most judicial foreclosure states, like Pennsylvania, for example, the actual sales are conducted by the sheriffs. Uh, so the court is not necessarily implicated. Um, that being said, I have one foreclosure in central Pennsylvania that was scheduled to happen this Friday, and the court uh, actually ordered the sheriff to postpone all sales in April until May. Uh, the good thing about uh, orders from the court that postpone these is that um, it abates any applicable deadlines and limitations on the number of postponements you can take um, in Pennsylvania, you have a limitation on numbers you can take, and the, the court order basically abates that, and so it doesn't count as a strike against uh, the bank. So the courts are understanding that, that, that uh, creditors have obligations that they need to meet, uh, and they're, they're abating them to the best of their ability. Uh, but, I mean, essentially, if you're in a, a foreclosure, judicial foreclosure state, there are going to be some serious limitations on what you can and cannot do at this point in time. Um, for those non-judicial states, uh, like West Virginia and Virginia, for example, in our footprint, um, th there's no strict bar on it because these are held typically on the courthouse steps, or if you have an auctioneer, it'll be held on-site or at a, at a neutral location. Um, but, of course, the CDC and the federal government, uh, and most state governments are very strongly discouraging any gathering of more than 10 people. Um, as a result, um, you know, if we hold a non-judicial foreclosure, um, even though all of us in this room know that it's, it's in, unless you have a really well-advertised sale at a, at a, at a on-site, um, you know, with an auctioneer, you're not going to get 10 people on, on your best day at a foreclosure sale, um, you could still face at the end of the day um, some arguments by borrowers that um, even though there's not a direct bar on the foreclosure, that the circumstances presented by COVID-19 would chill the sale. Uh, and this could impact recovery of deficiency judgments at the end of the day um, and otherwise. Rabbit. So there's some... Yes. Sorry, I was gonna, I was going to interrupt. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, I was going to wait for you to finish your um, your thought oh. there, but we have our first question. Okay. Um, and, and the question is whether or not foreclosure would be halted um, in a specific situation where the borrower has filed a Chapter 13, the plan has been confirmed, and the real estate has been surrendered, where the property is a rental house that is unoccupied. Um, and I, I can actually answer that. Um, for you, the CARES Act specifically exempts vacant and abandoned properties from the moratorium on the foreclosure and the um, the provisions of the CARES Act. So, to the extent that it is actually unoccupied, um, that for that um, would not be impacted. 
I don't know, Travis, if you want to speak a little bit more to that or not, but that was the, the question and that is the answer under the CARES Act. No, that's it. That, thanks for, thanks for uh, pitching in on the CARES Act portion of it. Um, and in that case, the only thing we have to consider is um, whether we're in a judicial or non-judicial foreclosure state. Um, and, and, and the same things that I just said, those same considerations would apply. Um, if you're in a judicial state and they are, the sheriffs or the courts are not holding foreclosure state sales, um, then you have a practical bar as to whether you can foreclose. If you're in a non-judicial state and, you know, it's been surrendered and the hope is just to, for, for the lender to put in a credit bid, you can probably go ahead um, because you're not going to have to worry about any anti-deficiency argument at the end of the day. Um, so I hope that answers the question fully. Um, but if you have any follow-up, if, if the asker has any follow-up, feel free to reach out to me and or Ange uh, by email at the conclusion. Um, so I was, I was uh, concluded my foreclosure comments anyway. Uh, so a, another, the next practical consideration um, is that in a lot of states, uh, and, and, you know, I practice my home base is in Pennsylvania, um, we have been considered by the governor to be non-essential. Um, that reinforces what perhaps many of you have known for years. Um, but at any rate, uh, we can request some waivers. Uh, but, you know, in general, in Pennsylvania and many other states, law firms are uh, closed and we're all doing work remotely and we have limited staff in the office. Um, so that's going to affect the timing of our ability to turn around uh, court filings that actually need to be uh, mailed, um, the ones that can't be filed electronically, ones that have significant paper that, that a, a staff member would need to process for us. Um, and it would impact uh, getting letters out, et cetera, um, in particular demand letters. Um, all of these things are going to impact uh, the speed with which we can get mailings done, um, the speed with which we can record documents like um, modifications to deeds of trust, releases, et cetera. Um, it's also going to impact, um, I haven't quite seen it yet, but I am sure that it's going to start impacting the speed with which title companies can turn around uh, searches, uh, particularly for those courthouses that are closed or uh, open only for limited businesses. Um, the last practical consideration is that, that, you know, in many cases, borrowers' focus may simply be on things other than our loans. Um, you know, some of these borrowers may unfortunately be sick themselves. They may be dealing with sick family. Uh, they may be dealing with significant business interruptions or, and, and if you could switch to the next slide for this, Ange, Some of them may just be looking furiously for toilet paper. Um, and if you could switch to the next one, Ange. Um, even in the, you know, Ange discussed uh, sort of the moratorium uh, on, on con uh, commercial or consumer loans, rather. There have also been some recent statements by the regulators on uh, that would apply across the board to commercial loans as well. Um, last week, there was a joint statement by several state and federal regulators, including the FDIC, Federal Reserve Board, 
uh, the Conference of State Bank Supervisors, uh, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, and others. Um, they have strongly encouraged basically across the board workouts uh, with customers at this point in time. Um, and provided that workouts are sort of tailored to the situation, um, the regulators have, have promised that those workouts will not be categorized as troubled debt reorganization, uh, which would save the banks from some issues with uh, setting reserves, uh, reporting these, uh, et cetera. It, that would not apply to debts that are already troubled, of course, but as, as we all know, uh, even debts that are already in the troubled debt world are going to be impacted by this as well. Um, so the next question we have um, is what these workouts uh, would look like, because we're going to probably have a lot of them over the next um, 60 to 90, maybe even 120 days. Um, and Ange, if you could go to the next slide for this. Um, at this point, uh, we sort of have a well-defined sort of types of categories of workouts. Um, most of them are going to have maximum periods of three to six months. Um, but this, uh, this sort of new world presents some opportunities uh, for banks. One, it, it, to the extent that this matters, and it'll matter mostly to uh, your PR folks rather than the, the, the folks on the ground doing this, but it could help build goodwill with customers and communities. Uh, but for, for my purposes... Uh, it gives us a, an opportunity to look at the loan documents, make sure we don't have any issues with the paper, uh, make sure we don't have any issues with title, and make sure that we don't have any issues with perfection of liens. Um, and we can build into these workouts um, opportunities to fix any of those issues. Uh, we can also add, uh, to the extent loans don't already have them, we could add in some uh, uh, cooperation assurances from the borrower that they'll sign documents either before or after um, the sort of semi-forbearance period uh, to sign documents needed to fix things later uh, if we can't get them done in, the, in time. Uh, many of these could be streamlined through simplified documentation, uh, particularly if the situation allows. And I know that I've seen a handful of clients already sort of rolling out uh, those types of agreements, I'm sure that you've already seen them. If you need to fix loan issues, et cetera, though, it's probably best to consider whether that simplified documentation will work. But for the most part, uh, a simple one to two page forbearance agreement should work fine. Um, I definitely recommend, as I always do in any situation, if we're going to do some workout um, restructuring, that we get acknowledgments of the debt amounts, acknowledgments of enforceability, acknowledgments of lack of set-off, um, and get mutual releases in there as well. Um, the last point that I want to talk about before we move it back to Ange um, is not on the slides because this just sort of came to my attention over the weekend, uh, but under the CARES Act, um, there is an amendment to the bankruptcy code. Um, the As many of you know, there's uh, sort of the new small business reorganization subsection of Chapter 11 uh, that sort of streamlines the reorganization process and makes it cheaper for small businesses. Previously, that cap 
uh, for small businesses that could take advantage of that was set at 2.5 million. That has now been moved up to 7.5 million. So over the next, you know, six months or so, I would expect that we're going to see more small businesses truly consider whether they ought to be filing bankruptcy, especially because they can now, there are more businesses that will be able to take advantage of these streamlined provisions in the bankruptcy code. So again, if there are any questions that uh, you haven't um, asked us already, uh, feel free to reach out uh, to me after this presentation or at any point that they come up. Uh, with that, I will turn it back over to Ange. Thank you, Travis. Um, what we want to walk through now is talking about one of the options that is going to be available to kind of small businesses that are struggling during this period. Um, the Small Business Administration has a variety of programs. Um, the CARES Act actually has streamlined some of those processes and impacted a couple of those programs tomorrow. Um, there is going to be a whole hour-long presentation on Section, Section 7A loans um, that also talks about the payment protection part of the CARES Act. What we are going to talk about today is a program that is kind of complementary to that, which is the Economic Injury Disaster Loan and, you know, how it kind of plays into this bigger picture of how to help businesses as they are all kind of struggling in this economic time period. A couple of the kind of housekeeping things about the disaster loan, it is directly funded by the SBA from the U.S. Treasury. Um, to the extent that you have small business clients, they are permitted to have multiple SBA loans. So they are allowed to come into a bank and go through the 7A process in addition to applying directly with the SBA for a disaster loan. What they are not allowed to do is obtain a loan under the 7A program and under the disaster program that covers the same damages. So if you have a, a small business that maybe comes in and says, you know, I need some, I need some capital, I need to, for instance, pay rent this month and maybe for the next six months. Um, they can obviously, you know, apply through the 7A or the other um, kind of programs that a bank or financial institution may have. That is also something that is permitted um, to be paid for by disaster loan. They cannot, however, get the disaster loan and a 7A loan to pay rent. They would have to get those loans to pay different things. As far as the disaster loan goes for the COVID-19, um, they have relaxed the requirements and the regulations specifically for this disaster loan. They have not relaxed some of the eligibility requirements or some of the paperwork needed for other disaster loans. But as far as this one goes, um, any small business that is, is impacted can apply for the disaster loan. And that means not just the small business itself, but anybody, any other company that is directly or indirectly impacted. So if you have a small manufacturer, the wholesaler of their product as well as the retailer 
of their product. All are in that chain and all of them are eligible to apply for and potentially receive a disaster loan. Your private nonprofits are allowed to apply for and potentially obtain one of these loans. Now, there are a number of organizations that are not eligible to receive these loans. Um, they are listed here on your screen. In addition to that, the very first screen of the SBA loan process now is a certification that you fall under one of these categories, um, that you are eligible and that you do not fall into one of the ineligible categories. Now, for those small businesses that have more than 500 employees, there is a disconnect right now between the CARES Act and what the SBA is doing. The, S the CARES Act specifically states that a business cannot have more than 500 employees. At this time, the SBA is not limiting businesses to 500 employees. It is allowing businesses to have the greater of 500 employees or the industry size code. So if you are in an industry um, where small is considered 600 employees, those businesses would be considered for a disaster loan currently as well. And that's a little bit different than um, what we've seen in the past, but the SBA at this point, like I said, is allowing that. That may change in the future. That may They may continue to allow those businesses over 500 employees to apply. Um, I go back to my most used word, which is fluid. Um, you just have to kind of stay aware of this and be aware of that, you know, your businesses may end up not being allowed to apply for these loans um, if they're over 500. Um, as far as the loan itself, on the disaster loan, um, it is allowed to be up to $2 million. They have changed the collateralization. You are now allowed to get up to $200,000 without any collateral for these loans. The interest rate will be the same. It'll be 3.75%. For businesses, it'll be 2.75% for nonprofits. Uh, loans can be used for specific things, fixed debt, payrolls, accounts payable, um, any type of bill that would have been paid in the ordinary course of business had this disaster not occurred. Cannot be used for lost sales, lost profit, expansion. And once again, you cannot obtain a, your businesses cannot obtain a loan for the same items if they're also getting, going through the 7A process or funding from some other source. And there are a number of different questions. Absolutely. Um, and this, this question is actually uh, from me. Um, on these, uh, on the purposes for use of these proceeds, um, did I read correctly somewhere that, that perhaps these proceeds on, on long-term debts could only be used for payment of interest and not principal, or am I misremembering what I read? I think you are misremembering, but I would have to check because I don't recall seeing that in the CARES Act. Okay. It talked about payments for fixed debts, um, and those that we paid in the course, I don't recall there being a differentiation for the disaster loan 
um, piece of it on principal versus interest. Oh, you're, I'm sorry. You're only talking about this. You weren't talking about uh, 7A, uh, which no. they have that information. Right. Okay. Right. 7A, again, for everybody on the phone, 7A and payment protection will be tomorrow um, kind of talking about the way these these different loans interplay with each other and the way that maybe they can be used for your client. Um, so there are a number of ways that a small business can apply for these. They can do it via paper. They can call and get a packet. They can email the SBA. They can also go online. Um, for those on the phone that went through the process last week or over the weekend, the process has significantly changed. Um, and I'm actually going to get out of this because I want to take you to the SBA website as of today. The SBA has changed its website for the third time in three days or four days, really, to how this process works. So for your small businesses that are coming in and maybe need funds, um, and don't want to have a lot of documentation, this is one of the ways that they can do it. So now what happens is when you go onto the SBA website, you do have to do um, the, the verification that confirms that you are an eligible entity. You have to verify that you are not um, an ineligible entity. Each of these screens, through the business information, the business owner's information, and additional information summary, are simply data collection points for the SBA. So when you go into the business information, they are going to ask for you to fill in business name, address, those, um, the tax identification number, when the business was created, where it's located, and a little bit of information about what the business has as far as annual income and expenses. There is no documentation required in your business information or your business owner's information as far as uploading or providing tax returns of 4506T. You know, they are not at this point um, kind of having the businesses upload that information. They're collecting information. They're still requiring that your businesses provide owner information, and kind of aggregate that information across your businesses. So if you have an LLC that is, has a parent company, they are asking for parent company information. One of the key... Um, provisions of the disaster loan part of the CARES Act is that they are the small businesses at this point are allowed to request a $10,000 advance. That advance is going to be based solely upon the business's self-certification that they are eligible and are using the funds for an allowable purpose, such as paying for sick leave, payroll, operating costs, debt obligations, um, you know, any type of permitted use of the funds. That is a $10,000 advance that regardless of whether the loan is ultimately approved does not need to be paid back. It is essentially a grant to the business and it is a grant that will be received, that can be made um, at the time you file the application right now 
on the on the SBA website, it will ask you or ask the small business whether it would like um, that advance. It will fund that advance. Um, the SBA has said that it will fund that advance within three to five days. Um, obviously, that may change as time goes on, depending upon the number of applications the SBA gets. Over the weekend, the last numbers that we had showed that there were about 50,000 pending applications that had already been made for this particular um, disaster loan. It is also already um, kind of extended the period during which the SBA is going to be reviewing those loans. If you have a small business that applies for this disaster loan but is also going through the 7A process and ultimately ends up with a 7A loan, they are, they are allowed to kind of roll over their disaster loan into a 7A loan or have that end up the ultimate loan that they obtain. If that happens, the $10,000 advance will reduce the amount of loan forgiveness under 7A that is available to the business. So, again, there's a, there is a significant amount of loan forgiveness for payroll costs under Section 7A that John Alivato and David Croft will be talking about tomorrow. To the extent that your small business clients have a disaster loan that rolls into 7A, they do need to be aware that that advance will reduce their um, payroll protection amount. A couple of takeaway points um, to provide to your small businesses. Um, at this point, the SBA is saying that the process will take about 45 days. So from the time that the application or the information is submitted through the review of the application to funding is going to be about 45 days. Like I said, over the weekend, they had about 50,000 pending applications. They anticipate that they will continue to see an increase in applications for this loan. If that happens, um, it is very likely that that 45-day process may be extended. So to the extent that you have small business clients that need money um, kind of immediately and $10,000 is not going to be enough, um, you certainly have the opportunity to kind of work with them on a 7A or maybe an in-house program um, or some other type of funding that will allow them kind of immediate relief um, instead of waiting for 45 or 60 days for funding from the disaster program. Um, even if your small business client goes through the process, of applying for this disaster loan, they do not have to accept the loan if it is um, approved. They can request an increase or a decrease of the amount of proceeds up to the $2 million that they're seeking throughout the process. Um, there is no application fee. There will be closing costs that are charged um, depending upon the amount of the loan if the loan is accepted. Um, as far as prior disaster loans, to the extent that you have clients that have prior disaster loans, those have been automatically deferred until December 31st of 2020. So that, that's an across-the-board mandate that the SBA has made. Unlike um, kind of the way mortgages are being handled where people have to call in and affirmatively request relief, the SBA has given that relief across the board. 
So, you know, that is obviously important, again, as your, as your clients come in and they're kind of looking for guidance um, about how to handle their financial situation. Um, just knowing that, you know, even if they have those loans, those loans have been deferred. Um, it's kind of an important piece to know what their current financial situation looks like and what it will look like in, you know, 12 months or nine months down the road as all of these forbearances and all of these deferments kind of start ending, and now your clients are going to have that that loan obligation again. And that is kind of the end of what we're talking about today. Um, if you have any questions, um, as Travis said, please feel free to email us, to reach out to us. Um, as I said, I think the most important piece of advice we can give you is to, you know, really understand that things are going to change fairly rapidly and fairly quickly um, over the next several weeks as people really dig into this and as the guidance from some of the federal regulators um, kind of comes down on those things that are regulated by the government. Um, and obviously, as Travis talked about with kind of some of the other commercial considerations and whether or not things can or cannot be filed or handled um, kind of moving forward. And I'm actually going to toss it back to Travis for any other kind of final thoughts that he has. Otherwise, um, I appreciate you all being here and kind of taking the time um, to talk with us today or listen to us today, I should say. Ange, thanks. And uh, I echo that. Thank everybody uh, who has who has attended. Uh, again, if you have questions, um, feel free to reach out to us. Um, and I would reiterate um, that, you know, Angie's presentation on the SBA loan was, was mostly limited to the EIDL or basically the disaster loan component um, and covered only the 50,000-foot view of the Section 7A, which is the more expansive SBA program. And uh, I would very strongly encourage you all who have clients, and I, I know most of you do, uh, borrowers who um, would be interested in these Section 7A or disaster loan um, offerings to attend our webinar tomorrow that's put on by Dave Croft and John Alavado. There is a link on our website where you can sign up for that. Um, if you go to SpillmanLaw.com and go into the COVID-19 task force um, portion of our website, um, the link to register for that webinar is right there. Uh, I, I can only imagine that these Section 7A loans will help uh, many of your borrowers um, offset a lot of what's going on right now and, and, and resultingly can help um, the banks uh, with their own workouts uh, efforts. So, again, um, absent, it looks like maybe I got one question in the meantime. Uh, yeah, I did get one more question. So this is, this is going to be for you, Ange. Um, if a borrower has been experiencing financial difficulties prior to the uh, COVID outbreak, will they be eligible for any SBA or disaster relief lending? Yes, they will. Um, the SBA is not for the, for the COVID piece of it, um, is not limiting their kind of loan option for the disaster loan. 
obviously the client will need to be conscious of, you know, providing the information. If they were already struggling, um, that is not prohibitive as far as application, but the information that they will need to provide will obviously need to be kind of the most recent information that kind of talks about that as opposed to kind of the rosy information from two or three years ago. But the caveat there being, even for ongoing operations, they're not allowed to obtain a loan for lost profits, for lost sales. Um, these loans are really directed at kind of operating costs and those types of payments that are going to be made by the business for the business operations and the debt and continuation of the business. It's not going to be driven by the fact that their sales have gone down 100% or 50% in the last six months. It's not driven by sales. It's driven by operating costs. Okay. So the thing that I take away from that is it's going to be, it is going to be sort of case by case, um, in fact, intensive, um, but that's not an automatic disqualification. That is correct. Um, and I think maybe, I know I know John and David will probably give this ca- this caution tomorrow. Um, I think it's probably beneficial to give it here as well. Um, even though, you know, as, as the banks, you are not necessarily involved in the disaster loan process, um, one of the things that you will need to be cautious about as you're dealing with your small business clients is the fact that this type of funding, this type of blanket um, funding with the amount of trillions of dollars that we're talking about really is kind of ripe for fraud um, and for abuse. And so, you know, it, just be very cautious as you're dealing with some of, some of your um, clients and kind of those people who are coming to you for loans to make sure that, you know, what you have is correct information. Okay. Well, thanks, Ange. Um, and again, reiterate, thank you everybody for attending uh, and for your attention. And there being no further questions, we will uh, sign off. And if you have follow-up questions later, you have our contact information. We will uh, send this slide out to everybody who registered or this this, uh, group of slides out to everyone who registered. Thank you.